As you open your Bibles up to the letter to the Colossians, I want to ask you to try to do something with me. I I want you to try to picture yourself at the church at Colossae. So you're going to have to go back in time a little bit this morning with me. Imagine being a church that was established by a man named Epaphras who had went away on a journey one day and, and came back and said, hey, I've been to this city called Ephesus, and at Ephesus I heard this guy named Paul, and Paul had been a Pharisee, and he was converted by Jesus, the Messiah, on the road to Damascus. And here's what he told me about Jesus. And this man, Epaphras, shares the gospel with this this pagan city of Colossae. And people are converted miraculously all around us. Imagine that. People who had been pagans. You had been a pagan, raised as a pagan. And now converted and a follower of Christ. But then at the same time, imagine that that zeal and desire you had to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Yet you were limited because you didn't have a written revelation. You didn't have a book to follow. And you had these guys coming into town telling you that they knew more than Paul did about the gospel. And now you're a little conflicted and you're confused. Imagine that. That's what was going on at the time that this letter was received at the church at Colossae. Just imagine your amazement when Epaphras comes back after going to find Paul once again at Rome and asking him for some help and some direction. And he shows up back at the church at Colossae with a Holy Spirit-inspired letter written by the special messenger of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ himself. Okay, imagine that letter shows up today. You would hang on every single word. You would focus on every syllable that comes out of that letter. Well, guess what? That letter has came today to us here at Sovereign Grace. We're in the same position. There are false teachers all around claiming to have better revelations, more knowledge, more spiritual experiences than even the Apostle Paul And they want to dissuade us. They want to take us away from the simplicity of the gospel and from the preeminence of Christ himself as our Savior. They they needed someone to bring them a letter that would instruct them and protect them and edify them. And that's what God sent them. And that's what God has sent to us in the letter to the Colossians. And every single word is important. That's why we're spending three weeks on the first two verses. Every word there is significant. Imagine if you had never heard these phrases before, or if you had, but they were in a Hebrew context. Hebrew people talked about being saints. Hebrew people talked about being brothers or united or being faithful to God. But you had never actually experienced that. You never had anyone actually identify you as a saint who is a faithful brother. It would amaze you. And, and the way that Paul actually introduces the letter should amaze you. Because what he's doing to these, these poor souls here at Colossae that were confused is he's enlightening them by introducing them back to the one Epaphras talked to them about. He's introducing them back to who Christ is. I gave you an outline last week, and here's basically what it was, okay? And we focused on the first point. Today we'll look at the second point, which has three points of its own, Okay? But the Apostle Paul, in Colossians 1, 1 to 2, 
is introducing us to, number one, Christ, our reigning king. And he introduced him as the reigning king by focusing on Jesus' authority over Paul, sending him out to be a messenger. Today, Paul introduces us to Christ, our righteousness. Next week, Christ, our reconciler. But today, Paul introduces in the opening statements, he introduces us to Christ, our righteousness. And what he does is this. Here's where your three subpoints come in. Paul focuses on, his focus is on Christ's, how Christ's gift of salvation, how Christ's gift of salvation transforms us, number one, positionally, number two, practically, and number three, personally. It's real simple. It's right there. If it wasn't for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by grace through faith in what he accomplished, that's a gift. If that hadn't happened, we wouldn't be changed positionally. We wouldn't be saints. We wouldn't be changed practically. We wouldn't be faithful. And we wouldn't be changed personally. We wouldn't be considering one another as brothers and loving each other with Christ's affection. And so that's, that's what we see. Even in that opening statement, and, and I don't want to ever neglect to point out how every single word is inspired by the Holy Spirit for our edification, for our protection also. And it's serving both ways here because there was an attack on the gospel and how a person is sanctified at Colossae. The false teacher said that if you're going to be sanctified, if you're going to be a better Christian, a, a progressively better Christian, or personally better Christian, or practically better Christian, you had to follow their instructions. Jesus was good, and Jesus is part of it, but he's not all of it. Here are some regulations and some rites some rituals, some religious activities that you have to do to help out the gospel. And Paul is writing to say that's not the case at all. Matter of fact, right out the gate, I'm going to tell you, you already are saints, you are faithful, and you are brothers because you are, notice something very significant in the text, you are in Christ. It's a key phrase in that first or that second verse. What I want to do is I want to read the first ten verses and go back to verse two. And, and what I want to emphasize in that is notice that when Paul writes verse two, he describes how we are saints, how we are faithful, and how we are brothers by saying we are in Christ. That means in union or united to. Christ, as saints, as faithful, as brothers, okay? Let's begin. Let me read this text to you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, 
and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. To me, it's very, very important that Paul starts out addressing this church as saints. They were being told they weren't set apart unto God until they did what the false teachers told them to do. And then Paul goes further on in the introduction to say, um, this is the case ever since you heard the gospel, you were changed. He didn't say, you know... um, After you heard the gospel, the false teachers came in and needed to straighten you out and add some things to Christ's work to help you out. He says, no, ever since you heard it, you have been changed. And the evidence of your change has come back to me. We are rejoicing. We're praying. And and here's what we want. We want you to know more of the truth that you've already experienced and grow in it. He's he's already saying, I I see the fruit. I see what the false teachers are claiming that you need to earn by following their rituals. By their elementary principles, is how he would put it in the New American Standard. Their rules, their regulations. They actually were taking even some of the Old Testament law and adding that to sanctification. They were trying to make us better by following or going back under the law, somewhat like the Judaizers would do. He's not neglecting the fact that the law is good if it's used purposefully to lead us to Christ as our tutor. But what he's doing here, he's he's using some very important terms in the second verse to fortify the saints, to protect them and to equip them and encourage them. You, You can hear right away in the introductory statements that Paul drops theological bombs everywhere. He hits them hard. With, with these theologically heavy thoughts and terms. Terms that describe what it is to trust in a reigning and ruling King Jesus. He, he chooses descriptive terms that are both theological and practical. They're a result of this theological truth. And they transform the way we live. That's what he's saying. You're, you're a saint. And here's... Let me, let me describe what your sainthood looks like. It's faithful and it's brotherly. It's, it's loving. It's affectionate. That's what he's getting at. And so what I want to do is try to, try to weed through some of those words and, and talk about that a little bit this morning. But I think the key to understanding verse 2 is the phrase that you should put in parentheses or quotes around or mark somehow in Christ. See, he, he emphasizes that. He doesn't say you are a saint, you are a faithful brother in the law, in the rituals, in the routines of religion. He says you are all these things in Christ. It has to do with his imputed righteousness coming to us and changing us. The good works always follow the work of Christ, not our works. The good work comes from Christ in us and through us. The terms saints, faithful, and brothers, again, these are weighty phrases for the person who's never heard these used before and never had 
themselves identified as this before. I mean, you know, we think about saints, right? Even today, people say, well, I'm no saint, you know, I'm a good guy, but I'm no saint. Well, if you are a believer, you are a saint. And then when you think about what a saint is, it's pretty heavy. You are a special vessel set apart for the holy and righteous king to be used solely for his purposes, for his glory in the worship of his name. That's who you are. Paul says, it doesn't get any better than being a saint. (laughs) And you are, in Christ, already a set-apart person. He he could have said it this way. He could have summarized his introduction by saying, I'm writing to those who are right with God due to the one you are united to, namely Jesus Christ. I'm writing to those who have been judicially declared to be as righteous as Jesus. Because you are, because of God's grace. Not because of your own works, not because of what you would do to make yourself faithful. This is something that was done to you. Justification is done outside of you. God declares the sinner righteous and sets him apart for his purposes. That's a judicial act of the sovereign one. That's amazing to me. I love to talk about justification. Justification is the gospel. It's, it's telling us that we are saved solely due to the grace of a God who can sovereignly regenerate dead sinners through the life of his resurrected son. False teachers would have been shocked at Colossae to hear these kinds of descriptive terms given to the average Christian. They would say these kinds of terms are reserved only for the elite, like us. The people who have something called supernosis, superknowledge, super experiences, spiritual experiences or spiritual enlightenments. They didn't understand the doctrine of justification. They didn't understand that Christ became sin for us so that the righteousness of Christ would be imputed to us. That was beyond them because that actually took the false teacher out of the equation. He wasn't important anymore. Our works aren't important anymore. See, the the gospel eliminates those who would say that you need me to be a better Christian. Listen, saints, you don't need me. You don't need Nate to be a better Christian. You have what you need in Christ. You're not losing anything. You're gaining everything in Christ. The simplicity of the gospel is that it will actually change you from the inside out. You don't need people telling you how to live outwardly to be changed. If the Holy Spirit can't convict you of sin and lead you to righteousness, I can't. I can't. Now, should I instruct you in what the Holy Spirit has said about righteousness? Absolutely. That's my job. I'm called to do that. Nate's called to do that. But who can change your heart and your attitude towards sin? Not me. Not regulations, not rituals. I can make you go through the motions. I can have you walk an aisle, say this, repeat this, kneel at an altar. That will not make you any more like Christ than God has made you like Christ by his grace. False teachers taught that only those who followed them could earn a righteous position. Only those who followed their legalistic regulations... And their experiences could obtain holiness and faithfulness and equality, brotherhood. And the second line of this this epistle, 
Paul, Paul's clearly stating that, number one, in Christ alone, in Christ alone, we are transformed positionally. Positionally. It's in this, in this phrase, saints, that we see this. This is a positional change. We know we're sinners. But here he is saying, you are a sinner saved by grace. Martin Luther said, I'm simultaneously a sinner and a saint. <laughs> and that's true. Positionally, we are declared righteous. Am I completely righteous now practically? No, I wish I was. You see, that's, that's the thing that a saint will desire if, it's, if he's truly or she's truly been regenerated by God's grace. In, in this first line, or second line, rather, he, he's, he's telling us that through Christ alone we are transformed positionally. Positionally, he's saying this. By God's grace, because he attributes it to, to God's grace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, in verse 2. Positionally, by this grace of God alone, through faith in Christ alone, sinners are declared to be saints. Declared to be set apart. And not just set apart. Let me just emphasize this. He could have just said to the saints who are at Colossae. He doesn't do that. He describes them further by calling them faithful brothers. See, the, the doctrine of justification that makes us a saint also empowers sanctification. See, justification, you know, it's, it's basically lived out through sanctification. It's, it's, it's what empowers sanctification. We're set apart by God and for God, empowered by God. By his grace, we're empowered to live differently. Set apart means to be uniquely used for God. Sometimes I'll, I'll talk to uh, young people who are going to be married and counseling. And we talk about the, the verse there in Peter. In First Peter, Peter talks about husbands regarding their wives as a weaker vessel. And that's really, it's, that's a hard thing to translate and interpret. But that, that term weaker vessel doesn't mean weak as in fragile as in uh, no strength. It means precious. It's like a precious vase. You know, it's like something that you would set apart and understand that, that it's beautiful, it's intricate, but it's fragile. I can pick it up and I can handle it, but I'm not going to toss it across the room. And, and so when we talk about this being set apart, we're, we're set apart like that vase. We're set apart for a specific purpose has specific reasons to be set apart. And, and we're set apart as Christians to glorify Jesus, to live differently. We don't live like we were still sinners. The person who lives like they're still sinners and enjoys their sin has no evidence of truly being called by God to salvation. Colossians 2. Look at Colossians 2, 16. The true saint isn't made saintlier or better by following rituals. A true saint has been given the substance of what those rituals might have pointed to. And even the rites in the Old Testament pointed to. Look what it says in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, harsh treatment of the body, and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by 
his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Now, verse 19 is the key for those who have been set apart by God. You're not just set apart to be stagnant. You're set apart to grow. You're growing the joints and the ligaments. They're growing together, knit together through Christ. They're, they're saying, in, in one sense, the false teachers are saying at Colossae, if you're going to grow spiritually, you've got to follow our rituals. Paul is saying, no, if you are in Christ, he's the living vine. That is flowing through you and it's transforming you. You will grow naturally if you're connected to the vine. Now, false teachers weren't connected to the vine, so they weren't growing the only way they could grow was outwardly. So they had to put on the appearance of religion. They had to put on the appearance of righteousness, like the Pharisees, like people today. Hypocrites, play actors. Yet, in reality, the weakest of all Christians in a church, if they're truly born again, they're growing in righteousness. It's progressive. It's not perfected. You know, your, your stage of righteousness and my stage of righteousness on one level or on one subject may not be the same. You may far exceed me, but at the same time, I am hopeful that I am going to grow in this over time. Finally, I'll be glorified and it'll be resolved. But until then, I'm growing because it's the Spirit of Christ that's working through me. So what Paul's opening statement is doing is, is basically speaking volumes to encourage the original audience, and it's speaking volumes to rebuke the false teachers by calling them saints. Here's what he's basically saying. He's saying that the fruit, your sainthood, the fruit or evidence of this, this sainthood is your faithfulness. And the root of your sainthood and your brotherly love is your union with Christ, who is the head. It's because you are in Christ that you are producing the fruit of a saint, faithfulness and brotherly affection. Look, look further down in this text. When he, when he uses the term there, uh, in Christ, he follows it up by saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father. He's saying, look, you that have been set apart, you have been set apart because of this gift from God, and that should be your peace through Christ. That's your peace. That's, that's the peace that transforms you from a sinner to a saint. See, we grow in holiness not because of legalistic expectations or regulations. We grow in holiness because of joy-driven sanctification. We have already been granted grace and peace from God our Father. That's what moves me toward Christ and toward holiness. Rules and regulations won't cut it. I used to have a great pastor friend who would talk about rules and regulations. And he said, here's what I always did when they said, don't walk on the grass. Guess what he always did? stomped holes in the grass because the law could only point out that that was wrong to do it, but it couldn't change his heart and stop him from doing it. And that's the, that's the purpose of the law. The law is good and it's holy. But these men were using the law to actually say that this could set you apart if you have Jesus plus the Ten Commandments, let's say, or Jesus plus these rituals. And Paul's saying, no, by, by virtue of God's grace, you have been set apart. And the evidence is that you are faithful and you are brothers. He uses the term saints there. It's, it's hagios in Greek. It's kadosh in Hebrew. 
And it was a term used to identify the worship utensils used in the temple in the Old Testament. They were set apart to serve God. And what he's saying is, by virtue of Christ's imputed righteousness, because you are in Christ, you are set apart to serve God practically as well as positionally. He says we're, we're transformed positionally by, by the power of Christ, but it goes beyond that positional righteousness to practical righteousness. That's what he goes further on to say there in verse 2a. He goes on to say, number two, that, that in Christ alone we are transformed practically. Practically. That's why he uses the term faithful there. He points out that the saints at Colossae were also not just saints, but they were faithful. They were transformed, or or I guess you could say practically transformed, or evidentially transformed because of who was dwelling in them, which was Christ. That's what we need to remember. Believers, truly born again, regenerated, born from above people, are transformed because of God's grace. Not just positionally changed but transformed from the inside out. We're transformed because true regeneration is intended to lead to true transformation. We're being conformed to the image of the one who saved us. We're conformed progressively and evidentially, according to Scripture, in Christ. Or we could say, by Christ's Spirit in us. We're called faithful, and if you think about this, there are times, you know, I might call you a faithful brother. I called you all a faithful uh, church this morning. And there are times that you are certainly faithful and you can rejoice. But there are times that you're not, right? And in those times, what's your desire? What do you want? When you know you've been unfaithful, what do you want as a Christian? You want to be faithful. Your heart longs for faithfulness. Your heart longs for obedience. Your heart longs to magnify Jesus. We don't do it perfectly, but the truly regenerated person is led evidentially toward repentance and faith and faithfulness in Christ because of the energy that works in us. Paul even says in, in Colossians 1:29 that his efforts to be faithful to the church there at Colossae are driven by Christ in him. That is his energy that works in him and drives his heart. Look how this is phrased in verse 29. He says, for this I toil. He's basically saying, I'm warning you, I am teaching you, I am trying to help you be wise and present you before God mature. He says, so I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, who's working there, Paul or Jesus? Yes, Paul's heart has been regenerated. His body isn't perfected. Positionally, he's a saint. Practically, he knows that he still lacks something. But he knows that the power that's working in him, that's giving him this energy, is Christ. And he gives him the glory. Christ in us. And I don't think Paul's the exception. Christ in us is the power of our sanctification. That's what drives us. That's what we want. We may not be as faithful as we want to be, but we want or desire to be faithful. To Christ, faithful to others. That's that's the heart of the regenerated person that's beating in us because of Christ's love that's dwelling in us. Listen, 
the law of Christ is the law of love, agape, God-like love toward those who need it and don't deserve it. That's what beats in us as Christians. We've been given a new heart. The heart of flesh has been given to us by Christ himself. And the law of Christ in our heart takes us further than any regulations could ever drive us. Any rules could ever manipulate us. Having the law of Christ written in our heart by his spirit is greater than having it written in stone on a tablet. But the false teachers couldn't understand that. So they tried to add more regulations, even to the commands of God, thinking more commands, more righteousness, more restrictions, better people, more spiritual. They're ascetic. They're they're beating themselves beyond what even the law said. They're going to be better because of this. In reality, it's self-focus sanctification. I want to be better. It's not about magnifying Jesus. In reality, what God's holy commandments do for us is point us to the one who achieved righteousness in our place, which is namely Christ. When I look into the law of God, I see my faults, but I also see the perfections of the lawgiver, Jesus Christ. And that has been imputed to me, and I stand in that unashamed and not condemned. The law of Christ or the law of love will give us what the written laws or regulations could never give us. It gives us an insight into God's own desires, God's own heart. If we have a love for God's honor, we will be driven to holiness. That's what drives sanctification. I want to honor God. If if we have a love for others, that will drive us to be faithful to serve them and to consider them as more important than ourselves. Because Christ desires that. That's what drives us. Trust, trust in what Jesus accomplished. Trust in Christ's life and his sacrifice alone is more than sufficient to move us out of this elementary school of outward morality and into the graduate school of joy-driven sanctification. A passion for holiness and faithfulness and obedience is the evidence of the heart of Christ beating in us. It's not the means to salvation. Sanctification is the overflow of the work of Christ in us. The finished work of Christ is what dominates our hearts now. And and not in perfection, because we still have this carcass of death, this body of death that we drag around with us everywhere, that still is prone to wander, prone to sin. But Christ is greater than our sin. Our hearts long for holiness because he dwells in us. Our motives are now driven by joyful sanctification, not legalism. Look at Colossians 2, 6. He says, as you have received Christ, Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him or live in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So what he says is, look, the way you received Jesus, live in that. How did you receive Jesus? Is a gift. He was a gift. So guess what? Walk in the gift. Live in it as a gift to you. You're rooted and you're built up in him. You're established in him. Know this. You cannot be moved from his presence, from his love, from his affections. Now, live however you want. How do you want to live? I want to magnify Jesus. 
Augustine said, love God and do whatever you want. He's right. If you really, truly love God, you'll do what God wants because that is what you want. See, that's the difference between legalism and joy-driven biblical sanctification. We will go further than the law requires. We won't just not murder our neighbors. We will love our neighbors, even our enemies, because Christ did that for us. False teachers didn't understand that then. They don't understand that today. False teachers, you can see in verse 8 of chapter 2, try to captivate people who actually believe the gospel. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And here's where this is important. These kinds of ideologies and philosophies are all around us, causing us to doubt and causing us to wander from the truth. And Paul calls them here in verse 8, elemental spirits of the world. And, and that's kind of hard to understand in the ESV. It's elemental or elementary principles of the world. See, the world apart from the spirit of Christ says to be good, you have to follow these rules, these rituals. This will make you a better citizen. This will make you a better person. I mean, we even base laws, you know, here in our society to, to keep, keep the society moral. Don't murder. You know, don't do this. Don't do that. Um, but it doesn't change the heart. He says, don't, don't be deceived by these philosophies, these elementary principles. They're not going to change your heart. Only Christ can do that. Trust in what he accomplished can do that. It will exceed the outward observances of the law, of the rituals. He knows that Christ will transform the sinner's heart, not just his outer garments, not just the way he looks outwardly. You can see that an illustration of that in chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 3, we see an illustration of what it looks like to truly trust in Christ for sanctification. And in this verse and throughout all of Colossians, you're going to see that all those who trust in Christ alone, not in outward observances and rules and all that, those who are truly forgiven, trusting in Christ, are also truly transformed practically. Look what it says in 3.3. He's just going to give you basically, here's the gospel, here's how you're saved, look what it produces. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore. Okay. Because your life is hidden in Christ. Because, therefore, because of this truth, your life will look different. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetous, which is idolatry. What he's saying is this. Know who you are in Christ. Know what he has achieved in your place. And you will put to death that which caused him to be hung on a cross. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. Or when you were alive in them. See, we've died to these things with Christ at the cross. He says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. You put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge 
after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And then he doesn't just say put off things, but because of what Christ has done for you, he says put on then as God's chosen ones. God's holy and beloved ones put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. He says, look, this is. This is what it looks like. This is what your your positional sanctification, sainthood looks like practically through your transformation. You become faithful. You who are obscene and harsh and hurting others, now you are putting on a love for others and pursuing them and speaking kind words to them for the glory of God because of Christ. Sanctification is flowing out of justification here. Sanctification is just justification lived out. That's all it is. And that's what he's saying here. Christ's righteousness has transformed you, not just positionally, not just philosophically, but practically it has changed you. And it's changed you personally. Notice what he says as he's addressing them in verse 12. He says, put on as God's holy ones, holy and beloved, right? Chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts. Now, Here's what I always love about this passage. Paul is writing to a church. Somebody's not being compassionate. Somebody's not expressing a compassionate heart. Somebody is not kind, humble, meek, and patient. And somebody in that church needs to bear with other people. It's as if he knows all churches in the future would be like this. Because they are. See, because of Christ... We are positionally united together in the body. But we're not perfectly, per, perfectly sanctified at this point. And he knows that personally we're going to annoy each other. And we're going to rub each other wrong at times. And we're going to need each other to express what we know to be true about us positionally. We need to express that practically and personally. And that's what he, he goes on to say in Colossians 1. 2a he says basically the faithfulness that i attribute to you is evidenced by your brotherly love by the brotherly unity by your brotherly affection basically what we learn here is in christ alone we are not only transformed positionally and practically but it goes beyond just a practical do the right thing to a personal pursuing the good of others Verse 14 of chapter 3, it says, Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. See, that's not just a practical thing. That's a personal thing. Love the unlovely saints that are not yet completely, perfectly sanctified among us. Because we're not completely and perfectly sanctified yet. And we need their love and their affection and their brotherly kindness. Basically, as I sum this all up, what Paul is doing is sort of describing Christians for us in that second verse of Colossians chapter 1. He basically says this. Christians are described as people who are set apart vessels for God. They are 
set apart for his purposes, by his grace. And those set apart vessels practically put on their faith in times of difficulty personally. They faithfully and lovingly help one another in the body. Because it was Christ who made us a body, who united us together by his grace. That's what 3.12 to 16 goes on to say there as we looked at it. He says in verse 16, verse 15 rather, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Basically what this means is let the peace. It's not like it's Christ's peace that's dwelling, ruling in our hearts. That's not what he means. Let the peace that Christ has obtained for you between you and God, let that justification, let that redemption rule your hearts. You've been forgiven. And you were called into one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dominate in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. We are united into one body because we are in Christ. The body's not perfect. The body still needs help. We all need God's grace. And he puts us together to magnify that. You know, we see each other's flaws. I mean, it's easy for you to see my flaws. I don't see them so much. You see mine. I can see yours. And my job is not to point out your flaws. My job and your job is to come alongside those who are weak and lift up the weak hands and the heavy hearts and to walk with them Because we are positionally united together in Christ. We are practically called to serve Christ here on this earth. And we are personally brought together in a church where we can grow together in grace. So here's what I take away from from what I read this morning. What I studied this week. In these opening lines of this letter. Here's what I take away. Number one. Christ's imputed righteousness alone transforms us positionally. Sinners are declared to be saints in God's eyes through Christ's imputed righteousness alone. That's the first thing I see. The second thing I see is is positional sanctification moves me to do something. So Christ's imputed righteousness alone transforms me not only positionally but practically. I am moved toward faithfulness because of Christ's righteousness. Because he dominates my heart. He gives me eyes to see what the law could never show me. He changes me from the inside out. He moves me inwardly. And thirdly, I can see that Christ's imputed righteousness alone will transform me personally. I'll be moved toward unity and affection in the body because of what Christ has done for me. His work has transformed me, and it's called me and you into one body to serve him together with those who need grace. So as I, as I looked at all this, you know, my, my question that followed thinking about, okay, this are, these are great theological truths. I'm changed positionally, I'm changed practically, I'm changed personally. Okay, everybody, go home and, and just know this. But there's more to it than that. My question for myself is, Do these three terms, these two, three descriptions actually describe my life? You know, I know I'm positionally righteous in God's sight. I know that. Um, Does that transform me practically? 
Does my position before God transform me in a way that, that causes me to be more faithful as a friend, more faithful as a servant, more faithful as a husband, more faithful as a dad or a mom, right? Is, is that truth about who I am in Christ? Is it making me a faithful servant of Christ? Is it changing me personally? Is that truth about my sainthood? Is it changing me personally? Am I, am I now that I know that I'm in Christ and in his body forever, am I now actually concerned personally, brotherly, about those in this body? Am I praying for you? Am I pursuing you? Am I helping you? Am I willing to serve you? And, and as I take stock of that, as I think about that, I hope you do the same. I think that I fall short, but Christ didn't. And he is my righteousness, and he is your righteousness. And if you focus your eyes upon what he has accomplished, the areas in which you see yourself falling short, those areas will be magnified, but they'll also be empowered. As you look to Christ, you see what he's done. You'll be thankful for that. You will be thankful for those who are positionally here with you personally and who need your help practically. So I would encourage you to do that. Um, The book of Colossians, the letter to the Colossians, you've got to keep this letter and its context in your mind the entire time you read it and the entire time you hear sermons from it. This is a eminently practical, practical letter. It was meant to rock the world at that time. False teachers were being thrown away because of this letter. Saints were being encouraged and going out and doing great things because of this letter. We should expect the same thing to happen when we hear this letter and study it ourselves.